This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 9th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The number of different banking institutions has shrunk in recent years. Is the wave of banking consolidation itself a problem? What prevented banking consolidation before the last couple of decades? Cato's Diego Zulawaka entertains some of the theories surrounding bank mergers and where he believes the concern ought to lie. Since before the financial crisis and now... Uh, as if as the financial crisis is now ten years ago, um, banking consolidation has accelerated. Why did that occur? Why did that banking consolidation? Why did it? Why did that wave begin? Right. There are various different drivers depending on when you start looking and what school of thought you come from. But the but what I guess what prevented banking consolidation. Many years ago. Right. So the United States has historically had a lot of banks. As recently as 1984, we had 15,000 banks, another 3,500 savings institutions, and then about six or 7,000 credit unions. That's a lot per head of population than most other Western countries. And the reason we had that is that for decades into the 1990s, America had very strong restrictions at the state level on bank expansion. In a lot of states, banks could only have one office. They were called unit banks. And only a few states such as California allowed branching. Now, from the 1970s, those restrictions began to erode. And in the 1990s, there was a federal law that enabled branching all across the country. And so since then, there's been a major wave of bank consolidation beginning in the mid 1990s and continuing into the present day so that today we have under 5,000 banks compared to 15,000 30 years ago. Uh, and where we had 3,500 thrifts, we now have a few hundred. And even the number of credit unions has declined. Now, some people argue that post-crisis, some of that consolidation has been driven by increasing compliance expenses as a result of new regulation, which small institutions have a hard time coping with. Uh, There's also a lot of evidence that the mix of low interest rates, which tighten bank profit margins, and uh, restrictions on new charters issued by regulators have also made entry into banking very difficult. And in addition to all of that, we had consolidation at the top during the financial crisis because some really big institutions gobbled up the failing institutions that uh, in September of 2008 uh, were threatening to go bust. All of those things combined together mean we have a more concentrated banking system than we did in 2008 and much more than we did in the 1990s. So Uh, compliance is, you would argue that is a key driver. I know you said it's a story, but is that something that you believe was a key driver of- I believe, I, I absolutely believe it is, particularly when it comes to compliance with significant risk management regulations at the top. So institutions that are large, but not very, very large, because they'd be subject to a bunch of incremental new regulations uh, because they're perceived to potentially fall into too big to fail territory and so forth. There's very little there. So we either have gigantic institutions or we have institutions close to or under $100 billion or something like that. Okay. So um, one of the things you did not mention, and that is the demands of the financial marketplace to have, you know, security capabilities online to provide a lot of services online to customers. Small banks are not well equipped to to deal with that, to provide that. There's a trade-off 
in banking still today, and there has been for a while, between what's called relationship banking, that is knowing your customer on a personal basis and treating them like they're part of the family and having leeway to actually act depending on their personal circumstances, regardless of what the computer tells you, and the economies of scale that come from having a big franchise and having a lot of branches and having automated processes that make it easier to uh originate loans and and do various other activities. And it seems that the internet and mobile apps and various other uh, developments in information technology have tilted the balance in favor of the big scale model. And so small institutions are struggling to cope with that. They're trying to go into partnerships to form their own larger groups to come up with uh, alternatives to what the bigger banks have to offer and what some of the tech companies are offering. Uh, But they're struggling. And uh, there's no doubt that with 1,300 banks with less than 100 million in assets, very small institutions still around in the United States, we're probably going to see more and more consolidation in future because that's just the way it's going. If we look across the economy, scale is a big driver of efficiency. So uh, who's who's pointing to consolidation as itself a problem and and why do they why do they view it as a problem some people argue that consolidation that big is in itself bad that's been a school of thought since the enactment of the antitrust laws in the late 19th century and uh, it's based on the understanding that size gives a company or any institution uh, power over negotiations and as a result they get to set the terms of engagement and they can extract whether it's profits or rents or advantage from their users and this is something that's applied to large companies all across the economy in the specific case of banking libertarians also have a concern that because there's an implicit a perceived implicit guarantee by the state of the largest institutions because they fear that in the in the event of their failure there would be extensive damage to the economy that that is driving consolidation in itself and that that is not a market driven phenomenon and one that needs to be addressed in some sort of way this is the too big to fail issue uh, which we've been grappling with for a while and the dodd frank act uh, following the financial crisis really failed to properly address and it's an ongoing question and this is an area probably where progressives and libertarians have some common ground in perceiving that some of the largest banks uh, are too large uh, or larger than they would be in a in a free and competitive environment. Yeah, and and the the fact, as you pointed out before we started recording here, that some of the biggest banks today were the biggest banks twenty five years ago, and in so much of the American economy, that's just not the case. Absolutely, we. Um... We are used to seeing a lot of turnover among the leading names in retail, in um, tech. in tech, even in uh, the automobile industry. Uh, and yet in banking, some of the names we're familiar with were around not even 25, but 100 years ago. And uh, that is a surprising development. And I think it's one that at least in part is owing to the barriers to entry into banking, but also the advantages that come from being very large already from a, from, uh, you know, raising capital perspective and, and, and soundness and so on in, ter- in terms of how much backing you are perceived to have from government institutions. Um, it is also the case though, that because America has had a separation between banking and the rest of the economy for a long time. So commercial companies cannot own banks and they haven't been able to since the 1950s. That 
The natural competitors that you see in other countries, namely big commercial companies, supermarkets, um, some of the leading names in consumer electronics, things like that, GE they do not enter. Well, that was that was a sort of an exception that was um, you know separately capitalized. It was a bit of a of a special example, okay. right? But Walmart tried to acquire a banking charter before the financial crisis in two thousand and five. They tried to for two years, and eventually they had to withdraw because the public outcry was very great. Uh, the perception that this was in violation of the law, but there was also a lot of opposition from bank lobbyists. Not surprisingly, but you might imagine that in an environment in which we tolerated commercial companies' involvement in finance a bit more, you would see the big names in tech becoming banks or operating banks. We see this in Germany, we see this in Japan. In the UK, Tesco, which is one of the big supermarket chains, has it takes deposits and offers uh, retail accounts. Um, and so a big source of competition that we see in other places, we don't have in America because of legislative restrictions. So, uh, you know, one of the big applause lines for Donald Trump that surprised me a little bit was Dodd-Frank. And uh, it makes more sense now in that a lot of communities have seen their small banks, their local banks struggle or get gobbled up or simply go away. And a lot of people lay that at the feet of Dodd-Frank, which seems unfair to me. The trend of consolidation has accelerated a little bit since the crisis. But I think most of it comes from a lack of entry. We had about 100 new banks created each year before 2008. We've only had about a dozen in the decade following the enactment of Dodd-Frank. So it's not so much that the existing institutions are closing down more rapidly or merging more rapidly. It's that we're not getting any new institutions in the door. And that's because regulators opposed chartering new institutions for a while. Uh, and also because the economic conditions have been relatively weak for much of the recovery. So it doesn't pay to become a bank at the moment. There are pushes from some presidential candidates to make it even harder to uh, engage in bank consolidation or have new entry, particularly at a high level. Elizabeth Warren uh, and Representative Chuy Garcia introduced a bill at the beginning of December that would expand quite dramatically the range of factors that bank regulators have to consider when they evaluate bank mergers. Their concern, their stated concern, is that there's been too much consolidation at the top. And they cite the recently approved merger of BB&T and SunTrust to form Truist uh, Bank. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that the former CEO and chairman of BB&T was CEO and chairman of the Cato Institute uh, a few years ago. But that was what prompted, one of the things that prompted this, the, 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 the introduction of this bill. However, I, when they cite the regulator's record in approving all of the three and a half odd thousand uh, merger applications that have taken place since 2006, what they neglect to mention, uh, Senator Warren and, and Representative Garcia, is that most of these mergers are tiny, of tiny institutions. And this is part of the major wave of consolidation that's just left over from decades of um, major restrictions on um, more competitive, integrated banking. So those are not the sort of mergers that should give libertarians or people concerned about financial stability because of government guarantees concern. And to the extent that we want to address the too big to fail issue, you probably want to facilitate entry and you want to eventually get into a situation where the government has some sort of commitment not to 
rescue these institutions. And uh, whether whether the existing rules are in good shape to achieve that, I highly doubt. We've certainly not tested the quote unquote orderly liquidation authority that Dodd-Frank created to try and resolve f- large failing banking concerns. Uh, but it's, um, I, it, it's, it's highly doubtful that we are in a position where we could do that today. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 